Hey, this is Georgia Kimmy. Welcome to my podcast, Piney Woods Justice. I'm an attorney who practices in East Texas near the Louisiana border, all the way from North Houston up through Nacogdoches. Criminal and family law is what I do. But along the way, I hear a lot of awesome stories, interesting crime stories, and I meet a lot of great people. I'm talking about judges, uh, prosecutors, defense attorneys, probation officers, and most of all, my defendants and clients. You wouldn't believe everybody's got a story. Mostly what I see a lot of is addiction, and fortunately, I also see a lot of recovery journeys and people who have turned that corner and made a success out of a failure, and that's very inspiring for all of us to hear about. Today, I am going to share an interview with you with Brent Tanksley. He's a substance abuse counselor that many of you already know because he's worked in many different counties, such as I have, and he's worked with a lot of different organizations that I work with. That would be the probation department, uh, drug courts. He works for the Alcohol and Drug Abuse Council of East Texas. He's worked for the Cypress Residential Treatment Center in Woodville, Texas, and he's currently partnered with Scott Hughes of Hughes Counseling, where he is the program director there. Brent has his own recovery journey to share, but we have a heart-to-heart talk about addiction itself. Is addiction a problem? Is addiction a symptom of a problem, or is it both? What is that hole inside that the addicts are trying to fill with illegal substances? Can an addict come from a good family? Do they have to come from a family where mom and dad are making meth in the bathroom? It's a very interesting question, and there's a lot of different facets to it. There's no right or wrong answer. There's no one answer. But there has to be an answer to the overall problem of how to cure these people, get them back on their feet, get them working, rebuild their families, because that makes our community stronger. That helps all of us. So Brent and I explore um, a lot of different solutions, a lot of different reasons why, and I hope you'll join us on this talk and any comments you may have, any feedback, please share this with me on my Facebook. That would be Georgia B. Kimmy, Attorney at Law, because I'd love to hear what you think. Take it away, Brent. Great to be here today. Thank you so much for having me. Like I could start in so many spots. Today, I'm the I'm the program director at Houston Center Counseling, but that has been quite the long, exciting journey. I, w- I wouldn't have ended up in this field had I not gone through the process of substance use disorder early on in my life. So, well, uh, tell us a little bit about your family growing up and what made you decide to turn to drugs. I grew up in a in a very a pretty awesome family, actually. My dad was a forester at Champion and St. Regis out of the paper mill, and my mom was a nurse. I have a brother. He's five years older than me. We had a really great environment growing up. It was very supportive. I played sports all the time. We hunted, we fished, and we went to church. Very East Texas-rooted kind of uh, background in what I do. I had a wonderful set. I had both sets of grandparents, and I was always out with them. So I had a really awesome childhood. You know, and I think that that's one of the things that people wonder is, like, how, how does someone, say, for example, we can look at certain individuals and we can go, well, that's understandable that they would start turning to substance use. And then you see other individuals, and you're like, why in the world would you ever do that? And I think that, I think that I'm one of those 
But if you looked at my life, I had a great life. What was missing? You know, that's the, that's the billion dollar question right there. If we can answer that question, if we can figure that out and solve the equation, and then we'll have it all worked out. And that's what we're working on that. Everybody's working on that. We understand a lot more. But what was missing was um, there's this hole inside of us sometimes. And I had that hole from the time I was a little kid. Uh, when I was a little kid, I didn't really realize that that's what I had. Looking back, I know that now. So it was not one particular event? You think you were just born that way? Yeah, absolutely. Oh, wow. Looking back, I absolutely know that, you know, it runs in my family. Um, mm. It's generational. Right. You know, it's kind of like this. They, you, you get around people in recovery and they say, uh, alcohol and drugs was never my problem. It was the solution to my problem. Okay. And, that, and that's very true. Alcohol and drugs was never once my problem. It was a solution to my problem. I self-medicated. And the problem was is that I couldn't connect to God. I couldn't connect to others. I couldn't figure out how to cope with life. I couldn't be balanced mentally, emotionally, spiritually. And that was from the time I was a little kid. I remember when I was a little kid, I'd look around at all these wonderful kids that I was around. And they had this contentment and peace with the moment. And I didn't have that. And I didn't know how to identify that when I was little because you're just going along. No, you, I didn't need skills for living. Mom and dad told me to go to school, go to church, let's go hunt, let's go play baseball, let's do this, let's do that. There's no need for a skill for life. You just go where you're told. But on the inside, I looked around and I see these other kids and you could just, you just know. You just know that they have this contentment that I didn't have. Now, as you get older, you start to identify and see it more vividly. And, and I think that it, for me, it kind of um, expanded and grew exponentially from that moment. When you kind of look back and go, oh my goodness, I'm not like these. And then what do you do with that? What, say it starts happening when you're eight or nine. How do I tell somebody at eight or nine that I don't feel like everybody else? I don't even have the verbal skills to tell somebody that, you know, really right. to identify that. And then it just grows. And then you go through, uh, for me, I went through certain fallouts with friends. Couldn't ever quite fit in at times. And then I could, and then I couldn't. Then, you know, somebody gives you something to make you feel better. For me, that kind of started when I was about 12, but the most impactful moment was when I was about 16 years old and I picked up cannabis. Everything was okay for the first time in my life. I don't know how to describe that feeling, but um, you know, if, if we have anybody that's listening and they know that feeling, the feeling is that sigh of relief. Those of us that have been through it know what that is and that's when you put something in and all of a sudden you just, exhale you think you found what it's all about and that happened for me at about the age of 16 and I'd done other things up to that point prescription drugs that because of sports injuries and things and that's a whole other conversation but that moment is when it all changed and I knew what I was supposed to do and I was supposed to get high it seems so strange and odd and twisted to say now but at the moment that's what it feels like so well when did it start becoming a problem for you or how did you first get in trouble with it? The interesting thing is it was a problem before that moment. It was a problem with the prescription drugs and things like that. It caused a lot of disruption in my healthy patterns, day-to-day -day life. It was probably a big cause to the fallouts I was having with my friends. Um, there was obviously more emotional spikes and valleys. It didn't take long for me. Some of the old school languages is, is you'll go to a treatment center and they say, well, you're a real one. Well, I was a real one. Like it didn't take long and boom, I was, uh, I was in there and I was, I knew what I was doing. I knew that this is what I was going to do. 
as far as when it really became a problem where everybody kind of knew that you had a problem, I remember when I was 17, my mom wanted to send me to rehab. It had just gotten so far out of control at that point. It was easy for others to identify that Brent has a drug problem. The crazy thing was is I was still making good grades and I was still you know, doing whatever I needed to do to, to I hunted, I fished, I played ball, it's whatever. But those that were closest to me could see. So I guess that's really the first time that it became obvious to people around me up until that point. We're really good at hiding. And the interesting thing is all these, all these negative, quote unquote, negative traits that I'm pointing out, these are things that are really great skills and assets. We just have to learn how to harness them and for, for the good. Because if I'm able to hide what hurts, well now if I can treat the underlying issue to that and not be overly emotional on the surface, that's a good quality. It's a really good quality. It's called balance. But see, we learned, a lot of us learned how to do a lot of that when we were hiding our, our substance use disorder. It's kind of interesting. It's what I'm always trying to help people understand is you gain this amazing asset, these all these wonderful tools. It's just that we're using them wrong. If we learn how to use them correctly, they turn out to be these great things that can really help us. But until you learn to use them correctly, you know, you're taking um, a hammer to an egg and it's just, you're just making a mess of everything. I heard a guy that's not in recovery say that if he was ever on a desert island stranded, the one person he would want was somebody in recovery. Because we have this amazing ability to adapt, <laughs> change, and find a way to make it through to another day. Yeah, it's true though. You know, I, I, I get what he's saying. Yeah, that's kind of where it started, I guess, and where everybody saw it. How did it progress to something else or did it? When you say something else, you mean like other drugs? Yes. Oh, it was other drugs by the time I was 17. What else were you taking? Ecstasy, cocaine, alcohol, cannabis, pills, lots of pills. Just about anything that you could get, I could get my hands on. In between the ages of 17 and 19, there was nothing on, that wasn't on the table, I guess. Well, did you plan to go to college? or I went How to could college. you manage that? I went to college. And uh, you were still doing all these uh -huh. drugs? Absolutely. Oh, I didn't wow. do well in college. Somehow I could not pull off college like I could <laughs> high school oh. under the influence. But I passed most every class. I mean, I don't, I don't really know of any class that I didn't pass. I just didn't do really well in the class. Uh, well, how could you afford all that? Uh, Sounds you, like a big habit. Uh, you find a way. I mean, I had a job. Oh. I worked. I always worked. Oh, I worked goodness. from the time I was 16. I guess that's another thing I really, you just figure out. And then you have friends and um, mm. it's kind of like a potluck. Everybody brings what they got and y'all just kind of, you know, figure it out from there or your money. You know, you kind of pull your money together. Well, you, when you did could, it present some legal problems for you? I was 18. Uh -huh. It was my first, yeah, my first semester of college. I uh, got arrested and charged with a felony charge of uh, delivery, and my life came kind of crashing down. I spent the next 11 years, I was arrested exactly 15 times. Um, I did 11 years of probation, most of it right here in Angelina County. Now a lot of the probation officers that I do work with under a certain counseling program, under the TAP program, they were my officer. And it's kind of interesting how that has kind of done an about face. I moved and I kept getting arrested. I thought if I thought if I if I can move, it's the place that I'm in, it's the area I'm in. If I can just leave, then uh, it's this town. And I'm sure people think that all the time. I know I, I talk to people that do. And I, I remember an old timer telling me one time that no matter where you go, there you are. And so wherever I went, there were my problems were the same. It was see the alcohol and drugs was never my problem. You know, that was my solution. The problem was me. The problem was that I didn't know how to cope. And so if I went to another town, I just wasn't coping there. 
So it was an interesting journey, I guess, uh, to kind of hit the highlights of that era. I got married. I got arrested, charged with a felony. I went to jail. I was in jail for a few months. I pled out. At 10 years of probation. I did 11 years because I got arrested many other times. I got married. I decided that this was not the town for me because uh, Lufkin was the problem. I went to Central Texas. I, I set up shop in San Marcos, Texas. Continued to get arrested. Went to school. Worked. I worked the whole time. It was an odd era of my life in that I was married to the love of my life. If anybody's ever been married young, it's exciting and fun. So there's this awesome experience that I'm going through young and married and then this difficult tumultuous aspect of my life of my substance use that is just progressively getting worse and worse and during that time I also picked up drinking and started drinking all the time it was you know I'm in college and married most people don't go through that experience Um, well did your wife join in did she have similar habits not really no not really I mean we went to college so we had our college experience but did she ever have a problem with anything now I always said that you know my wife had a love she had a good time when we were in college but when it was time to stop she just was like let's I'm going back to life she's an amazing woman and she's head of the PTK and she runs our household like she's like the Elon Musk of my household she like sees 50 moves ahead and anything she does she just does amazingly I remember when she did I remember having a conversation in with her and she said it's time to, to settle down and we need to do our life we need to be adults we've been married now for like three years and like we got to get a career and we got to do this and I was like I'm doing what I want to do mm. and she was on to the next chapter of her life you so know? you weren't together on that no no I mean uh, okay. I was still ready to go to 6th Street in Austin and she was done with that you know she's like I did 6th Street that's fun let's go do life now and that's where the, the first big tear in our relationship started happening it just progressively got worse in a lot of ways. I think it all came to a head. We moved back home. My grandfather was not doing well, and um, he needed help with the family business. And so I moved back home to help him. It really spiraled out of control when he passed away. I was really close to him. Uh, I miss him every day. And I didn't know how to deal with that. You know, that's the problem. With substance use, it's, it's about, like I said, it's about not being able to deal with your emotions. And that's, that's the thing that you have to figure out when, uh, when you find, try to find recovery is what is the root of the cause. I think a lot of us go into it. I think a lot of people, a lot of counselors even, they don't understand. And I know this is a bold statement, but I don't think they understand that you have to treat the root of the problem. A lot of counselors go in and they want to treat daily habits, which is important. We have to do that. They want to treat simple behavioral things, and that's important. We have to do that. But why do these habits and why do these behaviors come about? What's the root of that? And that's what we have to get to. For many of us, it's a lot of things. For me, it was my insecurity. From the time I was little, I was insecure. Whelmingly insecure. I couldn't get honest with myself, so I certainly couldn't get honest with others. And then, of course, there's some uh, some trauma in my background. But there's a trauma in over 85% of individuals in, with, with a substance use disorder issue. Trauma, physical, sexual, emotional trauma, 85%. So over the next few years, that's what kind of happened. And, and it just kind of got worse. My wife and I had our first child, son Parker. I'll never forget, I kept telling her, well, when, he, when Parker's born, I'll stop. And the day that she had him, I went and met my dealer three times in the parking lot Ooh. the last time I walked in and here I am I'm walking in and here's this wonderful lady with my son my, my, the love of my life with my boy 
it's one of those moments that it will never go away. It's like that sweet moment you see the mother of your child with your child. And I remember she looked at me and she said, I have a new man in my life now, and we'll be happy with or without you. You need to know that. She said that? Yeah. In the hospital? Absolutely. Wow. Yeah. She was serious. She was very serious. And it didn't take long after that till um, she left me. We're still married today. Somehow, I always it's funny, my wife's heard me tell my story before, and somehow I always forget to come back and tell that we're still married. We've been happily married now for, <laughs> for a long time. We just celebrated this September, if I keep going, if she, if I go home and she's still there today, I guess we're, we'll make one more day. It'll be 21 years married. Wow. And we've been together 26 this summer. Oh my gosh. Yeah, we've been together a long time. So she's grown up, we've grown up together. She separate. she left me. She said, I can't be around this anymore. Eventually what happened is I went back to treatment. So there was some treatment stints in there, but I went back to treatment for the last time. Hope to God it's the last time, one day at a time. She was pregnant with my daughter, and my son was nearly two, and I went to Beaumont, Texas, and went to treatment. Well, if you had been to treatment several times, didn't you pretty much know what to expect? I knew what to expect with treatment. Right. But that didn't mean that I was willing to do it. I mean, weren't you just hearing the same thing over? I wasn't absorbing most of it when I mm-hmm. went. Um, I will tell you this, and a lot of people will laugh, uh, but I've talked to people in recovery when I went to treatment the first time, I was 22 years old. I stayed sober eight days, but I almost got it. And and I know people that are like, how do you stay sober eight days? And almost, it was just right there. I, I really wanted it. I was willing to do it. And then I took a drink of beer. I took a drink of alcohol and it was over. Mm. And then I fast forward. It took me eight more years to get back there. And then I have a son. I have a daughter on the way. It's her birthday today, actually. She's 11 years old today. It was something about when my wife came and told me she was pregnant with a, with a little girl. Something in me changed. I had two children now. How old were you? I was 30. And, and you were still doing drugs the whole time? Yeah, uh, at that time it was mainly... And probation. No, I was off probation at that time, oh. actually. I had finally made it off. I had made oh, it okay. off about a year before then. You made then. it off. At 29, I got off probation. And I had been off probation. When I got off probation, it spiraled out of control even worse. Because oh. I, didn't, I didn't have any accountability in my life. I got very, very sick. I got very, very sick. And I think that's the important thing is that I'll come back to this. Because I think the most important thing when talking about substance use disorder and recovery is how we term it. I was sick. I was very ill. And what we do know now is that it is a brain disorder, and that's why I always call it substance use disorder. It's kind of like I never go into the public. I get the opportunity to go to public and speak all the time, and I never, I never go into public anymore and say, my name's Brent and I'm an addict. Because if I say, my name's Brent and I'm an addict, um, there's some sweet little grandma in this audience. And if I introduce myself to her as Brent and addict, after, after I speak, she clutches her purse and pulls back a little. Why is that? Well, it's because she has a grandson. And that's the term that's been given to him. He steals from her and lies to her. And it's hard to see that that's the symptomology of a compulsive disorder. But I'm going to echo that again. That's the symptomology of a compulsive disorder. Because a person that is truly engulfed in throes of substance use disorder, if you take alcohol and drugs away from them, to put it in layman's terms, the very base of their, their physiological response, their cognitive response, it says that I'm going to die. Their brain tells them I'm going to die. It says, if you don't put drugs in, now it doesn't, you don't hear that out loud. Now it may feel that way and you may hear it some in your little head. That sounds like a big alarm. Yeah. And it mm-hmm. says, you're going to die. Wow. So it, it's, it's survival. 
it's survival. It's a, it's, it goes to the very basis. That's how it's so ingrained. And so I don't tell her I'm an addict. I say my name's Brent and I'm in long-term recovery because she's still listening then. Because somebody that has cancer, they don't say my name is Joe and I'm, can- I'm, I'm a cancer. Mm-hmm. It's, does, it's not my identity, you know? So if I say I'm an addict, it becomes my identity and that's the way the world sees me. And then we have all these things that are set up to see the world that way. I know that this gets into it's kind of your expertise, and now we have a whole legal system that's set up on incarcerating people with health conditions and substance use disorder. And, and I'm not smart enough to figure that out. I don't know how to fix that, but I do know that 78% of individuals in prison in this country are nonviolent drug offenders. And I don't know that incarcerating them is the best way, but it's the best system we have. Mm-hmm. I heard a man by the name of John Schenholzer, he said, He said, we have built the perfect typewriter in this country, but we live in the digital age and we're still using this typewriter. And I think that's a real good way of looking at it. You know, Mm. how did, so let me ask you, how did, how did the legal system get set up the way it got set up to deal with drugs? Well, I think at some point, most of the people who are drug users are in prison because they have committed another theft related to that. It could be a burglary, you know a theft is, is the most common but it's tied back to wanting to support a habit yeah. and sometimes it's violence especially with alcohol There's absolutely a, a lot of family violence related absolutely. to that absolutely so was there ever an era in our country where incarceration by population number exploded because of alcohol or drugs well, I think in the in the sixties and seventies when the drugs exploded. And what did we call that? <laughs> what did we call that? That was Nixon, right? And he called it the war on drugs. Right. So can you have war on a chemical? And that's always the thing that I've been kind of like gotten back to. It's really not a war on a chemical, it's a war on our own citizens. And it know that. Right, because you, you take away the drugs and as you said, you don't take away the problem. Right. You've still got a hurting still person. Got, still got, and now we're throwing this hurting person in one of the most traumatic environments on planet Earth. They don't know how to cope with life to start with, and now we're throwing them in there where they're seeing violence, a plethora of things that I won't even verbalize, and then we put them back into society, and we go, that's your punishment. Now don't do that again. Well, the problem is, is that the reason that I ended up there is that I had all this pain, and now the pain is compounded and then we're back in the world. And, and that's what I think is important. And then it all circles right back to how do I talk about these people? Well, these are my people. I am these, I am these people. These are my people. You know, I, it's, it's all about, I'm, that's my biggest push these days is to help people and try to convince them that we use new terms because uh, we have to get over old thoughts to have a new idea. And if these old ideas and these old processes aren't working, and I think that most people that look at how the whole thing, how every, how our whole culture looks at alcohol and drugs, it's not working. It's not getting better. So we have to get past the stigma. We have to address it in a whole new light. We have to look at it as an illness. And when I went to treatment and they told me that I was sick, and that it was treatable. I had been to treatment three other times, but I had a man by the name of Tobin Wells tell me that I was sick and it was treatable and I broke down crying 
with hope. For the first time in years, I had real hope because I was sick and it was treatable. And believe it or not believe it, I know it's true because it worked. Because I went to a great place where they helped me treat the condition. Hope grew and life got better. So it all started in Beaumont, Texas. I come back, you know, if I'm talking to anybody that, that could, has a loved one that is in need of help, get them help as soon as you can. I don't care if they want it or they don't want it. I would rather them go to treatment four times than jail 15. You know, eventually it will click. If it doesn't, it doesn't. But I would rather give every effort we have trying to help somebody. We need to talk to people that are in, that are in need of recovery like an individual that is in need of help. I see people walk into my office all the time they'll sit in the waiting room and they're ashamed to be there. Well, they have a disorder. They don't walk into the doctor's office when they have a heart condition and ashamed to be there. And here's an opportunity for them to get better. So anyway, so I got, I got out of treatment. I came back. I engulfed myself in the recovery community. I started going to local self-help meetings. You know, you're here in recovery all the time that, that change people, places, and things. And I always tell them, simplify that, just change people. If you change people, you'll go different places and you'll do different things. But right. birds of a feather do flock together. And that's kind of where it started. So from there, um, you decided to be a counselor after you started getting involved in the recovery community? All right, so I wouldn't advise this to everybody, but <laughs> I was um, doing work that I didn't want to do at the time when I went to treatment. It was hard work. I was decent at it, but I didn't like it. My life was miserable. <laughs> I had an overwhelming spiritual experience when I was in there, and I don't go, I don't, they say in recovery that you're supposed to tell about these experiences over and over again and let many people know that they can happen, and I had one, whatever. I had a moment where my life changed, and I was, it was just one of those, I guess, rock bottom. I'm in treatment. I have a son here. I have a daughter on the way. I have a wife that I love that doesn't love me back. And, and to, to echo, or to kind of uh, focus on that for a second. I remember I went, before I went to treatment, I went and uh, got money for her from her for the, the umpteenth day in a row. I was She was at work, and she just handed me the money, and usually there was an argument about it. And uh, this day there was not. She handed me the money, and I'll never forget, she clutched the money a little bit, and she said, um, I can't stand you anymore. And I said, but I love you. And she said, but how do I know? She sat there and she looked at me and she waited on an answer and I didn't have an answer. I didn't have an answer because love is an action and I wasn't showing any love. My life had just kind of become that. And I went to treatment. They taught me how to get better. I get back. I'm in the recovery community and I always tell people, no matter what you do, don't think you go to treatment and you get out and they fixed you in 30, 60, 90 days. That's not how it works. They taught you how to do things. And one of the main things that they're going to tell you is to get around other people in recovery. You need that. Remember, the reason that, that most of us ended up in the situation we're in is we had difficulty coping with life or connecting to God and others. Well, I have to learn to connect to others. And the easiest way to connect to others is to connect to others that understand what I'm going through. So when I tell them a crazy thought that runs through my head, if I told that to a normal individual, quote-unquote normal individual, uh, I'll let you in on some jokes we call we call a uh, normal individual, we call them earthlings because we're aliens. We beam up in <laughs> outer space. So anyway, but if I told a normal earthling these crazy things that go in my head, particularly early on in, in, in the recovery process, they would look at me like I'm crazy. 
But if I tell somebody in recovery, they go, I know, I know how that feels. And I remember that happening over and over again, and I didn't feel alone. Over time, the, the thoughts change. It's a process, and you don't keep thinking insanity anymore. It's always potentially there, it's something you treat forever. But after a certain amount of time, and I don't know what that differs from person to person, I don't, I don't think about it anymore. You know, it's kind of like somebody who's lactose intolerant. They don't drink dairy or eat dairy. I, I don't put in alcohol and drugs because it doesn't do me well. It's just, uh, you know, I've, I've gone to events where you, over the years you have to, and you go to a wedding. Would you like a drink? No, I'm good. Thank you, though. You don't drink? No, I don't. And you just don't think about it anymore. I just, I just don't drink. Like, lactose intolerant people don't put in dairy. You just doesn't So once work. you made up your mind, you didn't have any relapses? Uh, this time, no. Wow. You know. Um, That's awesome. Yeah, I, I just, no, I, I got around the right people. God put me in the right places. Anyway, so I was uh, in treatment, had these amazing spiritual experiences. I wake up the next morning and I come out to have my uh, stale Wheaties, you know, like you do in treatment. I'm sitting there and I, I felt amazing. You know, I was like, I'm going to stay sober this time. One day at the time I'm going to do this. And I'll never forget, Buddy, that I was in there with, he lost his life to the disorder. Hmm. Uh, he said, you look awesome. And I said, I feel awesome. We talked on a little bit about like what kind of happened. He said, man, that's awesome. Very cool. I'm super excited, super excited for you. And then he goes, so what are you going to do when you get out of here? And my mind immediately goes to a job. I don't know what I'm going to do. And in God's timing, my counselor, Michael Pollard, walked in the room and I was like, I'll do that. And I would never, ever advise anybody that is in rehab to decide to be a counselor because <laughs> it is not what you think it is. It, it is not what you think it is. It's a lot harder than you think it is. It's different. It's, you're not, you're not going to sit in these groups and in these uh, sessions all day, every day, and have these amazing aha moments with people that's going to change their <laughs> life. It's a lot of grinded out. It's a lot of people that don't want to be there. And that's okay. I just don't decide you want to be a counselor in rehab. But I did, and it worked out. I get out of treatment, I had these amazing, remember I, I come, I, I have this amazing family and they told me to get sober. And so I found recovery, started working on recovery, started going to meetings, got a little job. I worked at the, I sold shoes in the mall. So how was ADAC? How did you get started with them? I had a lot of college credit hours, so I didn't need any basics. So I was able to jump right into the human services part of it, which is what I had to do for my for my uh, degree. You have to do what's called 300 practicum hours, mm. which means you're in school, and then you go find a local business or agency that kind of does what you do or what you're wanting to go into. My uh, professor got me linked up with ADAC, so I walk into ADAC. I was planning on moving. I wasn't ever planning on sticking around East Texas. I was going to go back out to Central Texas. Um, by this time, my wife and I were back together. We have this beautiful little family. We're dirt poor and struggling, you know, the American dream. And But I'm getting my life together, and uh, I go to ADAC. I was under a man by the name of Keith Smith. He'll forever be my mentor. Uh, Keith is one of the most incredible counselors I've ever seen yeah, in my he's life. He's seen it all. He, he knows is, it all. He he's is, like the authority. He is the man. Uh, <laughs> uh, he, he taught me how to do what I do. I'm forever grateful to that man. So I did my 300 practicum hours and they called me. Keith called me and he said, hey, we have this job that's coming up. We'd like for you to apply for it. And I was like, I don't, I'm not even licensed yet. I wasn't done with school yet, you know. And he goes, that's all right. We'd like for you to apply. And I said, well, I'll, I'll think about it. Well, I thought about it as long as I could it took me to hang up the phone. I was like, no, I'm going to Austin. I'm going to go live out in Central Texas. I'm mm -hmm. going to 
I had this I had this plan that was going to come together, you know. And life got in the way. Yeah, and, and <laughs> you you make plans and God laughs, right? He called me again, probably a couple months later. And I was like, no, nah, I don't think I'm going to do this. And Mr. Logan over at ADAC, he goes up and sees my wife who was working at her job and gives her his card. And I'll never forget my wife comes in and sees me. She says, hey, Chris Logan came to see me from ADAC. I was like, yeah, okay. She goes, he says he has a job for you. And I was like, yeah. They've been trying to get me to go to work, and she goes, well, and at the time, I'm Mr. Mom. Like, my job is I go to school, and I take care of these wonderful little kids. And and let me say this. Men, if you think that that is an easy job, don't ever discredit <laughs> what your woman, what your wife, what your spouse does. Trust me, 80% of us couldn't cut it. Trust me. I did it for three years. It is the hardest job I've ever had. You go to bed tired every, every night. Every day. Yeah. Oh. The biggest, uh, the biggest oh, job man. that you have when you're watching kids is to keep your sanity. So here I am early in recovery, trying to go to school and then raising these kids. It was a, it was the hardest and best time in my whole life. Mm-hmm. It was the hardest and best time in my whole life. And so anyway, so she walks in and she goes, she says, she, he says he's got a job for you. And I was like, yeah. And she goes, what does it pay? We talked about that. She goes, so that seems like more than you make here since it's nothing. Why don't you consider <laughs> going to do it? So I said, all right, let's, I'll do it. So I took the job. That's where I kind of, that's where I met you. That's where I met a lot of the people here in town. I did that job for nearly five years. I loved it. Oh, you were awesome. Uh, Everybody uh, loved having you. I appreciate it. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And, and I always wanted to do residential treatment. Oh. I'd been working there uh, for about four plus years, I guess. One of my counselor friends told me about a new, it was a high-end uh, residential facility that was open in Woodville. It's a private facility, it's very, right? Yeah, it's a private yes. facility. Mm-hmm. Very exclusive. So you know it's nice. Oh, yeah. It's very nice. <laughs> And so I went and applied, and I got the job. I wanted to do residential treatment. That was a very difficult job. It was awesome. I found out real fast I can do residential treatment, but I'm an outpatient counselor. I'm a, that's what I do. That's my niche because uh, inpatient is very intense, and it's very difficult. And it was fun to do. I don't think I'd ever really want to do it again. I will never say never. I, don't think it, I think I'm where I want to be for the rest of my career now. But, so I did that for like a year. And I was working out there. A gentleman that used to work with me at ADAC by the name of Scott Hughes was the other counselor there. When he was leaving ADAC, I was coming into ADAC. So we passed and we'd gotten to know each other very little. And there we immediately clicked. Like I'm kind of emotional right now. Like I I just, it's one of those people you meet and you're like, this is like, I knew I was going to be friends with him forever and always then. He was getting his business really up and running. It had been going on for a couple of years, but it was kind of just small work. It was a God thing. It just clicked and we partnered up. The rest has been history. So uh, it didn't take long. You know, I left Cyprus and went on with Scott full time. And that really happened because the work grew. So now you have people from probation who are referred to you, people who are court ordered, people have, with child protective services. We do child protective services, probation, private work. We cover a lot of area. We are one county away from Houston and one county away from Dallas. We cover the whole eastern side of Texas. And it's not just substance abuse, right? Mm-hmm. We do we do we do mental health counseling as well. That's a big need. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh. Mm-hmm. We do faith based counseling, couples counseling, adolescent children's counseling. We do it all. I am over the therapeutic, uh, the program director over all clinical work. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to get to a place where I can just oversee the work and do less. I'll, I'll always want a caseload. You know, this COVID thing has thrown a real 
wrench and things. The world things. is completely it's different. It's completely <laughs> different. Yeah. And Everywhere, so, everybody. It's so <laughs> uh, we were on pace to have this goal for uh, myself and a couple of the other counselors. On what we, and, and, and then COVID happened and, and get up shooting from the hip every day. I don't know what we're going to do every day. We're just going to make it happen. And we do. That's kind of how it happened. Was there anything in your career that you would regret or do differently? No, I don't think so. Uh, one of the things that, that we learn in recovery is acceptance of what happened and that all the things that we go through led us to the moment that we're supposed to have. And I truly believe that there are no accidents in life. I have one regret in my life, and that is about uh, my education. But other than that, I have none. I have none. Wow. I have none. I mean... That gives you a feeling of peace. Yeah. Huh? I sleep I sleep well because <laughs> no matter what happens, it is, it's the way it was supposed to go down. And if that's the way it's supposed to happen, then I'm where, exactly where I'm supposed to be. And I have acceptance for that. No, I wouldn't change anything in my career. I have the most incredible job. I, I want to do this job when I'm 80. And I mean that. I, I don't ever really want to retire. Like... I always tell my other counselors, y'all are going to have to wheel me in and I'm going to scream <laughs> at these young people in recovery. Y'all are going to wheel me out because I, I, 90 plus percent of Americans go to jobs they hate to buy stuff they don't need to accumulate debt that they can't afford. They estimate that 5% of people maybe get to go to a job that they absolutely have a passion for and love. I'm in the 5%. That's, that's so sad. I know. Oh, that's horrible. Yeah. And we wonder why we have these problems in everyday life and why people just walk around glued to a phone or a, it's because they're looking for an outlet, you know? We, we've stopped learning how to cope with life. You know, why are we building prisons faster than schools? And that's a fact. Why are we doing that? It's because we don't know. We don't, the whole society doesn't know how to cope. 5%, yeah. 1 in 20 people. I hear you. You yeah. know, like they, they, get to, they get up and have a passion for what they do. Mm. They don't work a day in their life. And let me tell you, that's a lie, too, because even if you have a passion, some days it's a job. But, <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like, yeah, like they truly yeah. love what they do. There's not many of it. It's sad. It's sad. Well, I know for a while you had a men's sober house going. I did. And how did that start? Uh, an, another work of passion. We had one in town. There was another gentleman that had one in town, Mr. King, and he, he, he had a great sober house. There was always a need for more. And so I decided to open up a sober house. And it went really well for a long time. I had that sober house for three years. It ran really well. And when you have somebody that can be there and you can trust and that they can enforce structure camaraderie, you know, and build a, a real sense of like a family there. I mean, there's, I know four individuals, four young men that came in and they're still sober. And if one, if one made it, then that, that it was worth it. Oh, this was actually your family home, wasn't it? Well, it was personal uh, property. It was my grandfather's house. Okay. Yeah, it was, he, he, you know, he, he passed, like I said earlier. It was his house, and we didn't really know what to do with the property. It was big enough, and mm -hmm. so we I threw it out to the family. Hey, what if we started a sober house? It's funny, you have all these weird and crazy ideas, and when you're early in recovery or in, in your active uh, addiction, they look at you like you're crazy, and then all of a sudden you get sober, and all of a sudden you work hard or do whatever you're doing, and you throw out a crazy idea like, hey, let's open up our family house to strangers that are struggling with their life. Then people are, they like, oh, okay, that, that might work. And so <laughs> it's funny how that works. You give it enough time and you do enough of the right things or whatever, put enough of your heart into whatever you're doing, and all of a sudden something that would have sounded crazy a couple of years ago 
they're like, yeah, that seems like a great yeah, idea. You built some credibility there. I guess, yeah. <laughs> and so uh, we did that, and it worked. I never had the fact that it was it was difficult in the end, and it wasn't working very well. well. What do you think went wrong? I wasn't able to keep somebody in place that could watch over oh. the house. So you needed help. Yeah. Help you could trust. Yeah, and I was working full time. I was at, at the center in Woodville and transitioning to Hughes Center. So my life, my own life was going through a lot. I was stressed and anxious. I wasn't balanced and something had to give. To be honest, I looked around, there were there were two tenants in the home and I gave them enough time to find another place to live. Obviously, I didn't force them out immediately. How many were living there when it was full? Five. I capped it at five. I had six for like two days one time, but that was because the gentleman was moving out. But I'd always keep it at five because that was, a, it was, you know, let's see, one, two, three, four bedrooms. I had four bedrooms, and one was a big bedroom, so I had two beds. And But I would never have more than that. I think we have another women's house that's going here in town, do we not? Yes, the project uh, Judge Inselman got started. Very cool. Mantooth House. Yeah. Um, overall for gay and Frank it's, Street. It's still working, right? Yes. It's funny. We had yes. this need for a women's house for so long. We had two. <laughs> men. Now we don't have I any know. men's houses and we have a women's house. That's crazy. Someday we'll get it right. Yeah. I <laughs> well, I know, that the, I know that that's an awesome project. So you've been involved with drug court for a long time now, huh? Oh, I've been doing that 16 years. 16 years. Yeah. I didn't realize the program had been up and running that long here. Were you were you yeah. with it from the beginning? Wow. I bet that was neat to watch it come off the ground and grow. Um, It has changed a lot through the years. It's kind of at its smallest point right now, actually. Really? Okay. I'm not sure if that's because of COVID or uh -huh. what, but it's still essentially the same as far as the structure goes. We've just been really limited on the activities we can do with people. Absolutely. Which, which to me, hurts my feelings because I like everybody getting together. Right. You know, face-to-face -face and having fun and yeah. just enjoying what we're doing. Yeah. I've been involved with the program, I guess, eight years in some capacity because when, when I was interning and doing my practicum, Keith brought me over and I was I part remember. of the team. Yeah, and I, I, somehow, some way, I always did groups or something. It's a great program. That is one of the absolute best programs. You know that it is evidence shows that it is the most successful treatment program in the United States. I'm sure you know that. It is wonderful. If anybody out there is listening and you have a representative or anybody that wants to support specialty courts, by all means give them your vote. That is a huge, huge way that we can help our community. Yeah, it's a nice intermediate step, I guess, because prisons, personally, I think, just make better criminals. Hmm. They come out knowing so much more and having right. all of these contacts. And then regular probation is just too lax because you know when you're going in and mm -hmm. you know how to beat your drug test. Right, right. So it's like, how is that going to help anybody? Right. I always tell people, I always explain all these problems I see, like we started the war on drugs and the population. You know, one in four people incarcerated on planet Earth are right here in the United States. One in four people incarcerated. And so, and we're building prisons faster than we're building schools. And 78% of people that are incarcerated are nonviolent drug offenders. But I always have to follow it up with this. I don't know how to fix it. I just know that these are big issues, you know. And like you said, you, prison, a lot of times people go into prison and it doesn't help. It just makes the problem worse in many ways. Sometimes with probation, it's it's not enough oversight. And it's not, it's not probations. Like, they're doing everything they can. I've seen 
these wonderful officers they give their right. heart and soul they do they do have good people they it's have not wonderful the people, people. It's, it's the structure it's, it's the, the system it's the system itself and so i don't know what the answer is What's the answer how do we fix that yeah <laughs> <laughs> well i mean you know what drug court requires uh-huh. it's seeing the judge it's right. being tested twice right. a week it's going to your counseling once or twice a week it's going to aa once or twice a week yeah. it's changing your people yeah and it's other people holding you accountable and staying with you day after day after day not just once a month so in theory if we could do specialty courts and expand that to include the overwhelming majority of the probation clientele that's how probation should be for everybody i've never really considered that Mm -hmm. like to be a massive scale push i think you're right that could be really you know? And some people don't need it for a very long time because they get it fast and they move on right. and they do well. And I've run into other people who have just really unsupportive families or mm-hmm. no families mm-hmm. or they've got a very serious problem combined with mental health issues. Right. I'm I'm of the opinion that some people need to be on probation all their life. I've heard you say that before. And, and I, I will say this the first time I heard you say that, I was like, that lady's crazy. And then the second or third time I heard you say it, it was about one particular individual <laughs> that we both know, and I thought that she's right. You're absolutely and right. And it's on. not to be mean because, as you know, the drug court team was very supportive. Uh-huh. I mean, we love the people we right. work with. We care right. about them. Right. So it's just that they need somebody looking over their shoulder right. who cares about them. That's And see, you said it right mm-hmm. there. It's someone who cares. It's about that mm-hmm. caring aspect. It's not about keeping somebody involved with that legal services because of punitive measure it's because of an aspect of accountability and care it's pretty neat and i've never really thought about like expanding probation to just look like that That would be the way to do it though i think you'd have a whole different society you really would you really really would wow you know do you think that we'll ever make those changes like that that, to get there you know i mean well when you say make probation that way i mean you're adding a lot of drug testing you're adding a lot of counseling that right now drug court pays for because Mm -hmm. no individual on probation could afford all that Mm -hmm. care Mm -hmm. but you know the studies at the national level show that paying for those extra things is still cheaper cheaper. than paying for prison absolutely so at some point society is going to get that Mm -hmm. and i think we're slowly transitioning i mean it may take another 20 30 years but as long as i have been doing it i have seen drug courts grow and I have seen them blossom into veterans courts, family courts, right. children's courts, right. you know, all different varieties and species, right. but with the same kind of underlying idea. Mm-hmm. Have you ever seen how they attacked the drug problem in Portugal? Uh-oh. What did they do? <laughs> they legalized everything from cannabis to crack. Oh. It was crazy. You know, it's shocking. You're like, that wouldn't work. But you know what it did? It opened up all the funding to support. Interesting. So... So they had a horrible, mm. one in one percent of the population they found years ago, one percent of the population was addicted to heroin. That's staggering numbers. I mean, that is one in a hundred people. And so they get together with all the health officials and people and scientists and they go, how do we fix this? And they created a committee and a board and they said, how do we fix this? And so they, they took time, they did study, they gave them the funding, figure this out. They come back to them and they said, we have an idea and it's going to work, we think. Their system, Portugal's system, was very similar to ours. Very similar. Very similar. And they go, we have an idea. And they were like, well, let's legalize everything from cannabis to crack. And they go, what? And they go, that's not going to work. And they said, well, let's try it. You said, you said you'll said you do anything we want. They said, well, let's try. 
you know what they found out? So all of a sudden, it took away the funding needed to support certain things, and it opened up funding for treatment and education and legal aspects that help, legal aspects oh, to the pro that, that offer accountability and support. If you want help... So the criminal justice money went to treatment money. Yeah, well, and what they oh. did is they trimmed all these programs that weren't needed. Like, do you need certain aspects of the criminal justice system if these drugs are legal? Right. And all of a sudden now they're more regulated too because it becomes more transparent. And so now you know how to kind of deal with it. And so wherever they would have they would have free sites to use and things like that, like they're still like kind of like methadone clinics but expanded. And at those sites they would offer help. And if you ever want help, we'll help you out. And so all of a sudden say Joe Blow goes and he wants to get better and he says, All right, I want to go to treatment. Well all of a sudden the stigma's removed. Because it's not this thing that's kept in the shadows so much. I know it's mind blowing. It's the craziest concept. And Joe Blow goes to treatment. Well, all of a sudden, Joe Blow's in treatment. They go ask. They ask Joe, "Hey, do you have anything that you do? How do you make a living? Like, what do you?" He goes, "I used to be a mechanic. Were you any good? Yeah, I was pretty good. Well, where are you wanting to live, Joe? Well, I want to go live over in Leeville. Okay. Well, I'm going to get a hold of. I have a network now in Leeville, right? And I call Leeville and I call the mechanics. I say, "Hey, could you use a mechanic? I tell you what, if you'll hire Joe." We'll pay 50 to 80% of his salary. All you have to do is cover the rest. Hmm. Well, all of a sudden, because there's funding available. Wow. So Joe gets out. Now, Joe has motivation because Joe has a job. He's in an employment system that understands what he's going to do. Now he has counseling. He has a job. And all of he a sudden, has purpose. And he has, he's valued. He's valued. And he has a reason to get up in the morning. And he's making a living. That's right. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. So you, wow. yeah, and so you huh. integrate concepts like that with like the drug courts and the specialty courts. I think I don't know. I wonder if we'll ever get there. You know. Well, the the criminal justice system is changing. I will say that it it's is. changing a lot. It is for the better. I think so too. I think so too. And it's I believe it's just in, a little slower than I would like, yeah. but it is changing. And I think mm -hmm. that one thing you know you can't change it overnight. The mm -hmm. system wouldn't support a an overnight change. So I mean, I see the change coming. It's cool. It's things that are going on are real cool. They're really neat. They're innovative. So I guess with more time, we'll get there. Well, and we'll both be there, right? I hope so. <laughs> I'll, maybe I'll be 80 and in a wheelchair, and they'll be willing me in and out of groups. I don't know. Anyway, uh, I hope to be there. Yeah. Well, thanks. Thanks for sharing your story today, Brent. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it very much. All right. You take care. All right. You too.